Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Patricia Stott. Um, She's part of Elevation Wellness. Uh, We're going to talk about her background and her work into what's called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and the Hypermobility Spectrum Disorder. So, Patty, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, I asked you to call me Rich, but you say Patricia or Patty? What do you prefer? Um, you can just call me Patty. That's fine. Okay, well, very good. Yeah, tell me a bit about uh, your background. How did you get into working with clients to uh, to help them with their issues? Um, well, it's a, it's kind of a combination story, just with my profession in coming from a rehab background, but. I have all of the conditions that my patients have. So, you know, call it selfish to want to self-explore more deeply into the background of EDS and get some more answers to understand a little bit better for myself. And now I have, you know, two biological zebras that also have EDS. So there was a selfish component in it, but, you know, it's for the love of progressing the knowledge base of EDS. So, you know, I started out. Yeah, You said you have two biological zebras? What do you mean? So I have, I currently have three kids right now. We have an older child that we're just about to adopt uh, and then two younger children that are biologically ours um, and they both have EDS. So they are both zebras. Mm-hmm. Oh, what, what does a zebra mean when you have EDS? Oh, well, that's a very good question. There's this phrase that, you know, doctors in medical school are taught to look for 
the horses, not the zebras, that when you hear hoofbeats, you want to kind of stay focused on what you're looking at and really not go down all the rabbit holes. And if you hear hoofbeats, think horse, and you really want to try to get to the diagnosis as quickly as possible to be efficient for treatment of the patient. But these patients are not horses. They are zebras. They are very, very different. So that's one reason for the, the zebra uh, analogy within this, this patient population. But there's also um, very interesting is that none of these patients look identical. Even if they have the same diagnoses, they don't look identical and zebras never have the same stripe pattern. So they use the zebra as the mascot for EDS as the diagnosis. So we tend to call each other zebras or that we belong to a dazzle, which is a group of zebras. Okay. I'd never heard that before. Please go ahead with your story. So um, tell me a bit about your background. I'm sorry. Yeah. So my background originally started in physical therapy, and that's where my, my rehab background came from. I'm actually a physical therapist and an athletic trainer, and I always had a passion for learning. I just, I can't seem to stop. I'm always looking for more answers because it's, I always come up with more questions about things. And I was for many years, probably about 15 years in general orthopedics, surgical specialty. We saw a lot of athletes, um, a lot of high level athletes, but I was also being the one with the connective tissue disorder, getting the, the more complex patients because I seemed to have a better understanding of how to work with them. And uh, I also was a, a hand therapist. I ended up going into functional medicine. I, I've gone down a lot of rabbit holes myself because I wasn't finding the full answers to be able to really treat the patients that were coming in to see me. And eventually I made a move out towards the, the West and we ended up in Colorado. And that's where I really started to focus in on treating primarily connective tissue disorders and had so many more questions come up from patients and my patients are the best teachers. And I, I just really spent time focusing on EDS and ended up being a part of the EDS society and working with the ECHO group. So my, my life and my education and my research and uh, everything I do right now is pretty much primarily Ehlers-Danlos related. How do you experience it and how do your patients experience it? Like for people that don't know, you know, what is the syndrome and what are some of the symptoms and things that people experience? That's a great question. And there's, you know... Uh, it's really different depending on which type of EDS you have. And usually what we're talking about is the hypermobile form of EDS because that is so prevalent. Most of the patients with EDS have hypermobile EDS or they have hypermobility spectrum disorder. So that's primarily what we're talking about when we, we talk about prognosis and things like that and what the presentation looks like. The, the more rare forms of EDS, the other classifications, most of them do have a more significant presentation and come with potentially a greater level of disability. Hypermobile EDS and hypermobility spectrum disorder, I kind of explain to people, it's, it's like a grab bag. It's not just that you don't know how the individual is going to be affected. You don't know how they're going to be affected on any given day. So it's really kind of a roller coaster in symptoms for some. I mean, there are some that have minimal symptoms their whole life, but typically the story that you hear is, you know, I was fine until, or things started progressing and I went downhill at about this time. So it's a very interesting presentation 
And it could be, it's not just flexibility. And we really get that into our heads in the medical field. And that's really what, you know, the, the professionals right now are trying to educate our other practitioners that it's, it's not just flexibility. It's not just hypermobility. It's a connective tissue disorder. So it affects all connective tissue in the body. It can affect the gastrointestinal system. It can affect the nervous system. And the effect that it has on each person, well, again, it'll greatly vary day to day, month to month, uh, and just again, between person to person. So it's very unique towards the individual. So I find it fascinating. It's like a new story, each patient that you meet, very, very different backgrounds, histories, prognoses. It's very interesting. Well, I understand it's variable, but what does that mean? What, What do people experience? What are some of the major things that seem to be common to a lot of the people you work with? And, you know, the rare ones we can talk about later. Yeah, there's, well, certainly there is joint pain, but that is very complicated because joint pain just doesn't come from hypermobility. It can certainly, if you overtax the joints and if you wear them down over time, but it just doesn't pop up with hypermobility. That's been pretty proven through the research. But the other things that happen that are, these are the the interesting things for me anyway, are these systemic issues that we see, and especially with hypermobile EDS and hypermobility spectrum disorder, we very often see two other conditions called mass cell activation syndrome and dysautonomia or specifically postural orthostatic tachycardic syndrome. And we're seeing them in the majority of patients that have these uh, underlying condition of hypermobile EDS or HSD. So with that being said, that's immune system responses, inflammatory responses. Um, We can have nervous system reaction, brain fog, it's such, and this is why it's so difficult to catch and diagnose is because it can look like such a broad spectrum of things that aren't related to each other. Like somebody breaking out in hives and rashes, um, having food sensitivities, also having really sensitive nerves and, and, you know, decreased tolerance to standing up for prolonged periods of time and brain fog. And they don't seem to be correlated, but they all are absolutely correlated. So Primarily what we do see systemically involved are a lot of gastrointestinal issues, so problems with the gut. We see a lot of nervous system issues, and that can have a a wide range and spectrum of being very minimally involved to very severely and like anatomically having problems with some of the the spinal cord or uh, the upper cervical spine, things like that. So those are immune system as well. So it's it's really not limited. And as to what you can see with the patients, it is all over the place. I mean, there, there's really nothing that's not touched through this connective tissue disorder. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, We need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. How do people find out that they have uh, EDS? Like, how is it tested? And, you know, what, what makes people suspicious? And when do they go to get help that you've observed? You know, unfortunately, most of the 
patients seek the diagnosis themselves. Um, it's really sad to say, but there are typically decades for most patients until they first start showing signs until they actually get diagnosed by a medical professional. So we have a lot of patients that find out, hey, I think I have this disorder. So-and-so told me that I look like this presentation and they end up diagnosing themselves. Now for the, the rare types of, of EDS, so we have 13 types of EDS and 12 of them, the rare types you can all genetically test for, but the hypermobile type um, and hypermobility spectrum disorder, there's Currently, as of right now, no published material on the genetics that are involved, but as of this year, hopefully we'll start to have at least one genetic link, a small genetic link that's going to be published, but currently we have no genetics. So it's based on what we call clinical diagnostic criteria. So there is a PDF online for hypermobile EDS. It's a checklist that any doctor across any profession can actually fill out with the patient in office, go through the checklist and see if they fit into the category of hypermobile EDS. And it goes through a variety of looking at flexibility, looking at some systemic issues, and then ruling out some other more obvious conditions. And when people come to you, what's a common backstory on why they come to you? What are they telling you? Besides frustration, <laughs> it's usually, it, it really does vary, but it's usually filled with a lot of medical frustration and actually a lot of surprise at what is actually linked together and that they've just been told their whole life that, oh, that's weird. Or, you know, well, I don't know what to tell you about that. And they've had a string of doctors just kind of give up because they don't know where to go from there. So it turns into a dead end. So that's primarily the story that I hear is that they don't know what to do at that point because they've had so many people tell them there's nothing that you can do for the diagnosis and that is completely false. Once you have the diagnosis and you understand the diagnosis, you can actually figure out how to support your, your systems better, all of these other conditions you can look into. You can really set up a much better future and hopefully help restabilize what's happened from the progression of these other conditions over the years. So what kind of therapies and things do you do with people when they come to see you? What does it look like, the therapy? Well, I play a lot. Of, I tell people I wear a lot of different hats. And because of, I do a lot of education. So I educate medical professionals. I know of a lot of the medical professionals locally and around the U.S. and even the globe. So I do a lot of care coordination. That's one of the things that I do provide for patients. So I try to figure out with the story that they tell me, who do you need to see first? What do you need to get under control? What do we need to screen for these other conditions? And what has nobody helped you with yet? So that's primarily where I start, even if I'm working towards my physical therapy-based training where I'm you know, going to do some hands-on therapy, that stuff has to be cleared first because if we're not working on the systemic issues and the inflammation and the damage that's been done over the years, then my hands-on therapy is not going to have the effect and the benefit that it would if we were able to help some of that out. But manual therapy-wise, it's I call it like a left turn from standard physical therapy because I realized after many years of treating my patients as I was taught to in PT school, you know, and we have this misconception as physical therapists that these patients are just hypermobile. And as long as we strengthen them, they'll be fine. And that is not 
what these patients just need. They actually respond differently at a cellular level when you try to push them. And when you, when you try to work kinks out and try to work on tense muscles, they have a very different response. So when I work on patients in the office, it's through a different style of training that's more gentle. It's more of an osteopathic approach. So it's very light. It's actually working with the nervous system to not flare it up, but to more so release, put things back into place, work on alignment. Rarely do I have to get into the strengthening piece because once they're feeling better, they actually start getting back to activities on their own that works into that strengthening. But it's a very different approach from what I learned in, in physical therapy school. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, what does that mean? You're doing like Feldenkrais or Agascu or postural stuff or, you know, oh. what does this initial work look like? Yeah, no, those are all great, but I don't do any of those. And I think that, and that's why, like, I love starting to talk to other professionals and finding those, those referrals out there so that I can find somebody that does Feldenkrais because every patient is very different. And sometimes my method doesn't work with the particular patient in front of me. So sometimes Feldenkrais actually does work very well. And I do believe that they're putting a paper together right now on EDS and Feldenkrais method, or it just might've come out this past year. Um, but there's other things called the strain counter strain method, which I do not do, but that also works wonders. Um, the primary te techniques that I use are through an institute called the Baral Institute and Upledger. So this is more of what we call a visceral or organ manipulation, neural manipulation, cranial sacral therapy. So it's more of a conversation with the body rather than moving the body. It's a very gentle approach where you almost follow the body back into place, whatever you're working on, whether it's a nerve, a muscle, uh, an organ system. It's working with what's going on in their body working with the restriction rather than pushing and trying to stretch out of it. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what that means. If, if people are hypermobile, then where would the restrictions come from? Like, I don't know if you give an example of, you know, doesn't matter the patient's name, no name, but um, what's an example? Like someone's shoulder was frozen or someone's leg was this or that. Like what, what kind of clinical things have you seen happen? Can you describe one? Well, what happens a lot, just, and I don't want to stereotype for everybody because everybody is different, but we, what we stereotypically do see is that those that have hypermobile joints are actually overworking those actually big, what we call power mover, mover muscles, not the small stabilizing muscles. Those get tired out and they stop functioning, but they start to overwork their big power muscles. So in the hip, what we tend to see is like bursitis because they have caused so much um, irritation and tightness from overworking like their gluteus medius on the side of their, their hip, trying to hold the leg in rather than using the rotator muscles to stabilize. So they actually do end up with tight fascial restrictions, uh, poor neuromuscular control around joints that are less stable for them. So it's, and that's another misconception that we see is that all these patients are just loose, they're falling apart. Well, their joints are unstable, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the muscles all around the joint are loose as well. They tend to have this, you know, an opposite reaction of a loose joint that's surrounded by tight muscles, which actually leads into the dysfunction that they have. So you're not doing weight training with them. You're doing what well, you're looking to see where they're out of alignment or where their posture's off and kind of helping them do general exercise to literally straighten up. And does that resolve the strains and stresses on them? 
It can, it really depends person to person. And you know, that's a great question as rehab therapists, like the first thing that we think is that we need to strengthen something, but yes, exactly. Like you said, is that my approach, it's actually, it's very tiered that you have to, you have to align the joints first and you have to work on that muscle control next. And then eventually you can get into the strengthening and these patients actually do very well long-term with the strengthening, but unfortunately that's not where a lot of them should be starting. So we tend to start them a little bit too quick, too fast, and we really try to progress them as quickly as we can trying to be helpful, but there is, there's a method to the, the madness that we want to use with these patients of, you know, it's, it's a lot slower than we would think in, in our PT profession. It should be a lot slower. It's different on a cellular level. So we have to actually stay under the radar where we think strength gains happen because we break down muscle and it's the rebuilding process where we get the strengthening gains. And it's different when we're dealing with a connective tissue disorder. Strengthening is the ultimate goal, but that's not where we're starting. We definitely have to work on the alignment, the control, and and then eventually we can work into the, the strengthening piece. Oh, the EDS have heard that, uh, I guess, collagen production may either produce the wrong form uh, of structural tissues or, I don't know, maybe a weakened form of it. Like, what, how does that play in people with EDS and their, their body's ability to hold itself together and to repair injury? There's actually still a lot of theories out there with the hypermobile version and I do believe that the article coming out this year with the genetic link that represents less than 20% of patients with hypermobile EDS is more enzyme related actually, but it does feed into collagen development on the tail end. So we are depending on the type of EDS that we might see. It could be, you know, deformed collagen itself or the proteins that make the collagen are deformed already. So something in the production of collagen is happening with all types of EDS. We are seeing that the collagen is just not as strong. The connective tissue is just not as strong. And we're also seeing in hypermobile EDS that, you know, like I said, that there's actually a difference on the cellular level and there's a difference of response. We call it cellular adhesion. So if you stress a cell, it's supposed to basically feel the stress and then try to repair what's happening by binding to a substance called fibrin. But what happens, what they're seeing in something like hypermobile EDS is that when you stress the cell, it's not binding to what we think it should be binding to. And it's binding to a less stable fibrinogen that it's causing basically weakened structures to form. So it's having a different response on a cellular level. So we're seeing a difference not only in the production of the collagen, but also in a difference in response to stress. Yes. So you talked about uh, inflammation. So what are, what are some of the things that patients should do before they come to you, when they first come to you and throughout the whole time? How do they prepare themselves or mitigate you know, other problems that could come of of trying to help themselves? Well, it's definitely, actually, it's better to talk it out. So before they come see me, there's there's certainly things that you can read up on. There's information out there on the, the EDS diet by Heidi Collins that, that people can look up, which has a lot of good information, but it's, it's actually very complicated because you're not dealing with one source of the inflammation or one source of the health issue. So it's, you know, each patient is an algorithm. So you really have to figure out all the components of the equation to figure out the, the end result or the answer. So it really takes sitting down and working through things and trying some things and seeing, 
did that help? Okay. It helped this much. Well, you're still feeling these symptoms after. So now we know that we have to deal with this. So it's very different. There are certainly, you know, like I said, dietary changes that might be a little bit better for those with, with EDS. They do in Heidi's work that she has out there, there are recommendations for vitamins that seem to help those with EDS. But then the big one for chronic inflammation in those with EDS is, is controlling the mast cell activation component uh, and reducing the mast cell reactions in the body, because that's what tends to cause a lot of the inflammatory responses for these patients. You were saying that, you know, even though everyone's different, what are some examples maybe of, of how you work with people and how you tailor and tune what you're doing to help them? You know, let's say uh, someone you see has high inflammation. How would you work with someone like that um, to help them so that they could do this future work with you? It's kind of going through a lot of the past medical history. And I, I tell my patients that they actually already know what's going on. I just have to help them translate so that we can figure out like diagnostically what we're actually seeing. So really listening to their story and probing with questions to look for connections. The mast cell component is definitely huge. We're certainly seeing it a lot in hypermobile EDS and hypermobility spectrum disorder. And, you know, even when we think it's not there, if we dig deep enough, there might be a, a small component to most patients. They are finding it in, I think it's between, I think the newest research said between eight 80 and 90% of patients with EDS have mast cell component. So really exploring how we can support that a little bit better. And here's where it gets tricky because patients that have mast cell reactions are actually quite sensitive to interventions. So even though we think something might be beneficial to them, they could have a reaction to it or be the person with all the negative side effects to something. So mast cell support, and again, of course, diet could be helpful, lowering histamines in the diet when we're talking about mast cells. But the mast cell support, we have two different routes. We have what we call like an over-the-counter pharmaceutical route, and then we have an herbal route that the patient can, can consider either route to see if that can help them with their inflammation. And the over-the-counter route typically is what we call H1, H2 antihistamines. Um, it's typically a mast cell stabilizer, a prescription like chromaline sodium, and then vitamin C. And then the herbal route we have is again, a mast cell stabilizer, but that's more herbal like quercetin. Again, we'd try vitamin C and then we'd see what else they would need support wise, depending on the mediators that they're having issues with and then what supplements would help that. So it, it's very complicated, but it's definitely something that you can figure out with the patient and that's the mast cell component. And again, if they're, they're not starting to feel better with that, you can start to see what did help, what was helped with the intervention, but what's still left over and what might be causing that. So it just starts to peel back the layers. The other place where chronic inflammation comes from is actually from dysautonomia. So where the autonomic nervous system is not functioning quite as efficiently. And that's kind of what we're seeing across the board is just some inefficiency in a lot of the systems of the body. And it just needs a little bit extra support so that we can find a better baseline. So working on the autonomic nervous system, so helping control heart rate, restoring normalized blood pressure, all of these autonomic responses, 
if we can start to find a way to support that system, and we have some superficial ways that we do that too, before diving again down another rabbit hole, if that layer doesn't work, then what next? So those are the big ones is the mast cell component and the dysautonomia. And if you can start to control those for the patient, then they usually can start to tolerate some exercise. And there is a, a piece of the dysautonomia component that you really, if somebody has more severe dysautonomia and POTS, they're really not going to tolerate exercise. So you have to work on that. And then you have to slowly work your way up to progressive exercising at a much slower rate. What, what is dysautonomia? So dysautonomia is just uh, basically abnormal functioning of the autonomic nervous system. And the autonomic nervous system is all of the things that we don't think about. Pupil dilation, the gastrointestinal system, how well that moves, the peristalsis motion. It is our sweating response, our hot and cold temperature response, uh, temperature regulation. It's our heart rate. It's our blood pressure response. It's vasoconstriction. It's how our blood vessels constrict and dilate. So it's all the things that we don't think about and what dysautonomia is, is not very good communication between our central nervous system that gets a message, like standing up for these patients, they stand up and their autonomic nervous system goes into overdrive. And rather than a small jump in heart rate to help accommodate the position, we see jumps up to 130, 140 beats per minute, just standing, or these patients have a heart rate of just 90 sitting because their body is not at a good baseline. It doesn't have good control and communication of that central nervous system to the autonomic system. So you have to teach the patient basically in many different ways, how to retrain that system to work appropriately and efficiently for whatever activity that they're doing. When you work with patients, like how far do you take them? And do they have to work with you forever or do you get them to a point where they go off on their own and now they're able to function and be okay? Yeah, no, I get really excited. I hope that everybody stops working with me someday. And sometimes people might check in for like the manual work. I do recommend that patients stop in for the alignment piece, because a lot of times we don't know that things are falling out of place if we're keeping up a program, but that does tend to happen with a hypermobile body. I do really like, I look forward to patients and saying that they've got this and that, you know, they're, they're taking it on their own. I, you know, I've a patient that I started with probably a little, just a hair over a year ago now who had trouble even sitting up for five minutes at a time. And, you know, now we're a year and change later, and we've just started working on a training program for a 5k. So and these programs take a while when we're talking about not being able to tolerate sitting or being vertical for more than a few minutes, which are quite a few of my patients, you know, you're really looking at a long-term recovery time of anywhere between 12 and 24 months, but that's progressive work. So, you know, it sounds like a long time to have to wait to run again, but that was a long time that she just constantly progressed in little things and, you know, able to go out more and go out with friends and have dinners. So it's, it's a long road to progression, but most of my patients do progress through. I do have some that I'm more of a referral system because we are seeing some more significant involvement, like upper cervical instability that does require a consult with a, a specialty surgeon and things like that. But the majority of my patients do move on eventually to self-management. But again, it can take anywhere from three months to two years. What feedback do you get from patients You know that tells you that I mean, obviously, you know, you're doing things to help them, but what kind of feedback or testimonials have you gotten that really just surprised you, delighted you? 
I have a lot of small ones. I mean, I, I have the bigger ones too, like people returning to athletics and things like that. But, you know, I'm, I'm actually shocked, not in like a very shocked way, but a happy way when I've had a patient who has just been miserable for years and we make a small recommendation of try this sodium support, try increasing your salt intake to this much. And they come in the next time in tears because they've never felt so good in their life. So there's these small little things that we do that can make such big changes for these patients. So there's a variety of victories, I suppose. Where can people, do, you, do they have to go into your office or can you help people you know, on Zoom or is this something, again, they have to be with you in person? No, I can do both actually, but it, it functions in a little bit different of a manner because I don't really act as a physical therapist through telehealth across state lines. In my office, I can do consultations and I can do hands-on work with patients and I can guide them through exercise programs. I do telehealth as well, and I do telehealth everywhere, but that's limited to what we call care coordination. So kind of what we're talking about, like, do you have all your ducks in a row to be able to support you? What haven't you worked on systemically? How can we get you that support? So that's what I do just with telehealth. I don't actually do, these are the four exercises that will help you um, just because my license stops at state lines. Well, how do people find out more about you and where, what areas do you serve? So again, telehealth, I do, I work everywhere. You know, we, we have a secure platform, so we can just meet through virtual consults through that for my system. And in office, I work outside of the Denver metro area in Arvada, Colorado. Uh, there is information on um, my website, which is www.elevationwellness.co. There's some educational material on there as well. Um, and uh, there's actually a book coming out. I have a book coming out. I'm a co-author in um, a book on EDS that is actually going to be the first guide for physical therapists. It's a two-volume series. This first one that's coming out are, is basically everything that you need to know to be able to touch a patient with EDS. So it's all the systemic conditions. It's kind of what we talked about, the things that you need to do before strengthening. And that's, that one's about 600 pages. So that tells you that there is actually a lot that you really need to know before you put somebody through a strengthening program. But that is coming out soon as well. And that's going to be accessible for the patients too. Okay, and, and website that people can go to, or where should they go to get help to find out more? Well, there's certainly, you know, we have our website that I gave you the address for, and then the book website is tamingthezebra.org, and that's got some updates on when that's coming out. Another great site is the EDS Society, and that has a ton of information on it. Um, and for providers, it has something called the Echo Group, which is free education, and it's a year-long program, and it's, it's wonderful. It's always up to date. There's a lot of good information in it, and they have a few different echo programs running each time every year and they do have some for the patients as well so the eds society is always pumping out new information for patients and providers well very good patty it's been great to talk to you and thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank you so much rich if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on itunes You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? 
Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.